Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are here with Doug Huntzinger. He is the Executive Director for Drug Prevention, Treatment and Enforcement and Chairman of the Indiana Commission to Combat Substance Use Disorder. So Doug, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, um, you know, could you tell us a little bit, like you have a really big title. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means and, and what you do? Yeah. So um, as a senior advisor to Governor Holcomb and a member of his cabinet, uh, I'm responsible for coordinating, aligning and focusing uh, the state's response um, and not just uh, the state agencies, but uh, working with our local stakeholders, uh, private industry, philanthropy in our response uh, to the drug epidemic. Awesome. Cool. Could you give us an an overview of what the landscape of the drug epidemic looks like in Indiana? Yeah. So um, I I really think that uh, this is probably the most dangerous time in our country to be doing illicit drugs. You know, last year we saw uh, over um, 107,000 overdose deaths uh, nationwide, uh, and 2,700 of those were our fellow Hoosiers. Uh, and we know um, from our toxicology testing that um, 85 to 90 percent of those uh, were due um, of those overdose deaths were due to fentanyl. Wow. And so, um, as I'm sure many many people are aware, fentanyl um, is an opioid. Um, it's a synthetic opioid, and just enough on the end of um, the tip of a pencil uh, is enough um, to cause death uh, from that substance. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the the dark, bleak um, kind of view of things. But, um, you know, this is where I, you know, I'm really lucky as I get to travel the state and see all the great things that are going on. Um, You know, Indiana has the 1115 Medicaid waiver. So that means our 2 million Hoosier Medicaid patients uh, have access to treatment for substance use disorder. And since January of 2018, uh, over 340,000 of them have um, sought treatment through uh, that program. Since 2017, we've been able to increase residential treatment beds by 237%, which equates uh, to about a total of 2,600 beds in our state. You know, our goal is really how do we, when when we know that when someone is ready for treatment, um, you have to have uh, the appropriate treatment available right then because they're going to find an excuse to not go. Um, If in that moment, if you don't catch them in that moment, um, they're they're lost until it comes back around. So, um, and and that's also where our um, distribution of naloxone is so important with um, Overdose Lifeline and Justin Phillips. Uh, Since uh, March of 2018, we've distributed over 173,000 doses of the opioid reversal drug, uh, naloxone or Narcan, uh, and it's, um, uh, name brand form. Yeah. And, um, I know I can speak for all of us and that we are very grateful personally for naloxone and the 
access to it um, because it's something that has, um, you know, frankly saved our loved one's life and given them a second or third, fourth chance at life and recovery. And now, you know, luckily they all are currently clean and doing well. And so that naloxone program is so important. And like you said, that window of time when it comes to the beds, like yeah. when they say, okay, I'm ready to go in. Like you don't have a lot of time. So you have to take them. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad to hear that increase. And I know that there's always a need for more, but you know, at least it's something that's being worked on. Yeah. Justin was telling me that she's going through about 14,000 doses of naloxone a month, uh, which is an incredible. Um, I know, um, I found that um, a, a Nalox box in my neighborhood uh, in um, just on the east side of downtown Indianapolis was um, empty. And the organization, I think, that had, um, that had agreed to fill it was kind of by the wayside. So I got with Justin and um, I am continually um, amazed at the amount of naloxone. Justin, you know, just in our small little neighborhood, um, how much naloxone is distributed through that community nalox box. So um, really important, you know, we're placing 430 of those all across the state. So anybody can um, can become a naloxone distributor. Uh, and then we're also, um, you know, with fentanyl in the state, uh, we're distributing fentanyl test strips through those as well. Um, because we know people are going to do drugs. So let's do everything we can to help them um, do it as safely as possible and make sure that when they are ready, that we then have that infrastructure to help care for them. It's amazing. Um, so thanks for the um, kind of the overview of where we are today. I think we all got started in this world seven, almost eight years ago now. And even in that relatively short amount of time, this has all changed drastically from kind of what we experienced. So super reassuring to see kind of um, the state programs and everything adapt to the current state of things. I'm interested, um, I know your thoughts on how you mentioned a few of the programs that um, Indiana has and kind of their efforts. Just on a broad scale, do, could you explain a little bit how Indiana's um, programs maybe compare to some other states or um, what, what the roadmap is in general for us to continue addressing this? Yeah, so um, personally, I think Indiana is a leader, and especially on the mid in the Midwest, um, and on several issues. You know, as we look at um, recovery supports, uh, you know, we have uh, we are a nationwide leader when it comes to recovery supports. We uh, early on asked the question. Um, as we create a treatment capacity, what are we doing to hold individuals in recovery? And that's where our 22 recovery hubs across the state came about, you know, really helping people as they exit uh, treatment. Uh, they, they can also do, um, many of them are also entries into um, this whole ecosystem that we're developing. But um, their real goal is how do we help people find housing, transportation, employment opportunities, um, how do we how do we create that social environment for individuals um, who maybe shouldn't go back to their old group of friends? And so um, our 22 hubs are working to integrate themselves into all 92 counties uh, to really be that front door um, and, and hopefully last door anybody has to go through as they um, as they move into recovery. Uh, naloxone distribution, I talked about that. That's something that I think um, many states um, have come and um, ask Overdose Lifeline how they're doing it. Uh, and we have a head start on that. You know, thanks to Justin and um, Overdose Lifeline, you know, she's been doing this many years before, um, you know, naloxone 
really took off. And so I, I think I, I don't always like to compare us to, to our, our, our neighbor states on everything. You know, um, Ohio's um, service delivery model is much different. Um, their kind of div division of mental health and addiction is in every county and the state is more of a finance uh, mechanism. Uh, and, and if you look at, you know, for example, syringe service programs, which uh, here in Indiana, uh, we have um, we have nine syringe service programs. Um, and then we have a, a larger set of harm reduction programs that don't provide the syringes. But in Kentucky, they have over 84 uh, syringe service programs. So uh, it, it just it's uh, it, it's easier to set them up. They're a little bit more um, palatable in, in communities. And um, so there's just there's differences that lead to differences. But I think as you um, really talk about overdose deaths is one area in which we can kind of look at and. Um, and Indiana, we put a lot of effort into, into data collection. Um, early on, we had a really hard time of um, kind of knowing uh, through our corner system what the accuracy was of our reporting. Uh, you know, were we collecting all of those? So we partnered with the um, CDC and our um, Department of Health worked to um, create a system in which anytime a corner uh, in all 92 counties uh, suspects a drug overdose, we are funding that toxicology and we are um, we are um, then having a private lab so there's no backlog, um, getting those results within 48 hours. Um, and that flows through when we have much better data. We also have, um, we've because we have um, seen an increase in our reporting and, um, and and ultimately an increase in our overdose deaths. We're seeing um, um, uh, we're seeing more federal dollars um, because we're we're getting better data. And so um, I don't know about other other states across um, uh, you know our state. Indiana last year had a um, a nine percent increase in overdose deaths, um, but if you look at Illinois, uh, they saw a fifteen percent increase. And um, we're not, we're one of a handful of states that have really piloted this data collection um, effort. So I can be very confident in our number that it is accurate. Um, but that you know that doesn't always lend itself to um, necessarily comparing state by state. But um, uh, and, and it really for us, it's about focusing on. Um, Hoosiers. And, you know, one overdose and one overdose death is one too many. Uh, so when we look at our neighboring states, um, I, I'm really about how do we how do we create a healthier Indiana in this process? Yeah. You mentioned, you know, some of the programs like naloxone and syringe exchanges and, and things like that, which I think those of us who are closely impacted by addiction see the purpose of that and the importance of it, but I, I know it can kind of be a, a controversial thing. Um, so I'm just curious what kind of pushback you get from people when you're trying to do these in the communities and what is your response to that pushback? So I actually uh, use, um, you know, harm reduction principles when talking about um, about a lot of these, you know, meeting people where they're at. Um, and especially as we counsel a lot of our um, a lot of our groups that are trying to set up these programs, um, you are not going to con convince everyone. Um, one, you have to find your champions. You have to find those people who um, speak the same language and and, you know, have the same experiences as those you're trying to convince. And so um, there are champions all across our state, you know, um, 
stigma is a, is a huge issue. Um, we have our Know the Facts campaign that um, is, is really helping tear down stigma. But um, I have testified before um, zoning boards, um, before community uh, meetings um, on different treatment programs or certain service programs. And um, it's hard. Um, it is hard to hear uh, the work that you're doing being um, demonized, being completely mischaracterized. Uh, and that really all goes back to stigma and a misunderstanding of substance use disorder uh, as a disease. And so I think when, um, when we're able to do that education, to kind of bring people along, meet them where they're at, um, what we what we often find is um, either um, someone hasn't really had an interaction uh, with uh, individual with um, SUD, or uh, they've had an interaction, and um, that is what is kind of informing um, their their life's experience. And and so um, really just listening, understanding, um, trying to show compassion, even when um, people maybe aren't saying the nicest things about you. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I, I will say we, um, we, we're not going to let the naysayers um, drive the conversation or, um, uh, or, or stop the work um, that, that we need, uh, that we desperately need to have happen in Indiana. It's amazing. I, I think we all relate the, a lot of what you said about the stigma and experiencing those maybe negative thoughts or comments towards, you know, for us, it's our loved one. It's our, the person that we're closest to and who we intimately know as these amazing people. And we can clearly see because we know the people that this is a disease and that this is something that takes time and work and, and a lot of things. So I'm, I'm curious because um, just kind of your personal background before getting into this position, what was your exposure to um, addiction or quote-unquote addicts, or people with substance use disorder? Kind of, do you have experience with that? What kind of shaped you, um, led you to this part of your career where you're very passionately trying to support these folks through their recovery? Yeah, so, um, you know, Honestly, I until seven years ago, um, I hadn't really thought a whole lot about um, you know substance use disorder or addiction. Um, my my career path really started um, in the Daniels administration. Uh, right out of college, I started at the front desk uh, in the governor's office and uh, worked my way through a number of jobs and ended as a policy director for thirteen state agencies none of which I deal with today. Um, none of them had any health-related focus. Uh, and so I always say my, my marketable skill is how to get something done in state government a little faster, uh, a little more efficiently, uh, and, and how to build those um, systems and collaborations that lead to successful results. Uh, and so uh, about 15 years ago, I had a really good friend who, um, uh, who had... Um, uh, whose alcoholism progressed um, pretty pretty quickly uh, and and very severely uh, and helped get him into treatment. And so going through that experience really um, kind of led me, having not really ever thought about it before, um, you know, the challenges of, um, you know, he was employed at a really good job, um, had insurance, you know, all the things that um, make life really easy uh, for uh for you know navigators as they're trying to navigate the system but uh, trying to 
you know, get him to understand that, you know, your job will be fine. We can, you know, there's FMLA, um, you know, even just navigating insurance when, and you'd get the call of, I'm not sure if insurance is going to let me stay any longer. I need to be here longer. You know, I know I'm doing better. Um, all of those challenges um, have really helped um, inform me as we, as we began to work through the policies early on of, um, you know, especially with Medicaid and, and as we, you know, as we were in 2018, when we were building out um, the system for the, for the Medicaid waiver. Um, so I had a little experience, but, but not really um, a lot. And especially as, you know, we, um, we look at what all needed to be done. I spent the first six months, um, you know, going home every night with a, uh, with a six inch stack of reading to, to understand all of the different acronyms and all of the different, um, you know, systems that are in place and what are other states doing? What are other countries doing that um, has been successful? And, um, and so it was an incredible uh, learning experience. We, um, we have some incredible um, partners in the agencies that we work with here at the state. Um, I always say, you know, I, I don't have to be the subject matter expert. We have, um, we have hundreds of those all across our state agencies, um, but understanding, uh, you know, their differences and understanding where they, you know, can come together and uh, that, that collaboration has been, I think, really a lot of the success that we've had um, in working across our, our state agencies and, and with our local partners as well. Yeah, and so has your... Um... I know you had your experience with your friend, but has your view of like addicts in general changed? I don't know if you, you had thoughts before, if any, um, has that kind of changed as you've been in this role? Well, absolutely. I mean, one, um, I've met some incredible friends who are um, in recovery and, and, and many of them in long-term recovery. Um, but also I think as, um, as we've really begun to, you know, uh, we've spent a lot of time working on um, substance use disorder, but recently, especially with COVID, um, you know, mental health, it just the total mental health and so many individuals in, in our state um, who have substance use disorder have co-occurring mental health issues. And um, I, I think the work that we've done, the infrastructure that we've built around substance use disorder um, is gonna go a long way to help us um, address mental health issues and substance use disorder together because I, I think dealing with a person holistically including their primary health um, is really how we not just create um, healthier individuals but healthier communities and healthier families and so I think as we as we work through this um, for me the big change has been understanding the um, how much just a, an individual's mental health plays into um, all of the other aspects of their life. Yeah, absolutely. I think all three of us can attest. I know my husband used for 15 years and it, it was really to kind of cover up some of his anxiety uh, because he has severe anxiety. It's like, oh, this is, this is a, a reason you started. I can understand. <laughs> um, I will say that the reason that we found you, um, you do have an Instagram account, but I think I was seeing your billboards just kind of oh all over Indianapolis. And so um, I don't know how far they go. I don't know if they're statewide, which would be really cool if they are. Um, but I was very appreciative of seeing your billboards everywhere um, to not show like, mm, like the scary side of addiction. Um, I really appreciated kind of seeing that. Um, 
can you tell us a little bit of kind of about the Know the Facts campaign? Yeah, yeah so um, Know the Facts campaign um, it is a statewide campaign, and we um, we're, we're in a period of, um, of what I call a little bit of a reset, really going back to our core um, mission of educating individuals that are educating the state that um, addiction is a disease, that treatment is available, and recovery is possible. And I think if you kind of tick through, um, you, you know, those three uh, categories, so to speak, um, and what I've said, I mean, we, each one of those, as we as we talk about how we've looked to um, really build a system that addresses substance use disorder as a disease, um, tr you know, having a treatment infrastructure that is open and accessible. Uh, and this time next year, we're going to be uh, we're going to be launching a new treatment finder uh, that is um, part of a national solution. Uh, but it 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 offers an individual to take a um, or an individual or a loved one can take a brief survey. Um, it gets some demographic information. It gets uh, if there's insurance involved. Um, really works to uh, some information about their substance use. Um, and really works to find the most appropriate place uh, for an individual to go and um, and tries to make that process as easy and as seamless as possible. And then allows for an individual, once they've had an interaction with that provider, um, to provide some feedback. And so really looking at how do we um, improve the quality and, um, and really make sure that um, we're not just creating available treatment, that we are creating available high quality treatment in our state. So, and, you know, and then with recovery as possible, I mean, we want to sustain everyone in recovery as long as possible. We know that, um, that um, relapse and setbacks are a part of this disease. And so anything we can do to um, help make sure that when that happens, um, we're there to um, have that safety net to catch those individuals and, and hopefully as quickly as possible, um, get them back on the road to recovery uh, is our goal. So um, it, it, while that is our message, it's also our work. And um, it has been, um, it, it has really resonated with um, our treatment and recovery communities, but also, um, a lot of our um, our local um, coalitions have also picked up and have um, been using the campaign um, in local communities as well. It's so interesting, and I um, I want to highlight that the the whole education piece around recovery is possible. While that may seem like very simple and maybe obvious. When I got started in this journey with my husband, like the only thing I knew about addiction was like someone who was a thief or like very negative connotations, like, you know, like maybe he would end up homeless or like I had no frame of reference. And the last thing I thought was that recovery was possible because I had never seen it. There were zero examples in my life. Like the only thing I knew was like these negative aspects. So I think that that's such a powerful piece of the message is that there is hope. And um, so I, I really appreciate that personally, but then also just curious because um, I think if you, if you enter rec the recovery community, a lot of times you're met with, 
you know, like AA and A and, and we are advocates on our podcast of like multiple roads to recovery. Each of our partners has taken a different route. Um, but a lot of times if you just get into that more traditional recovery setting, you know, perfection is success. And so I'm curious as you're starting to um, gather data around the, the success of these programs, when it relates to recovery and, and our Hoosiers uh, success with recovery, like what metrics are you using? How are you measuring success as it relates to how a person is recovering? Well, so that's really difficult. Um, and, you know, that's actually a question I get asked uh, a lot. And uh, as we, um, you know, get better data, uh, we will get better at answering this question. And so um, for me, what I would love to love for us uh, to be able to track is once um, someone um, reaches recovery, and, and again, you know, we promote multiple pathways, um, as long as they're evidence-based pathways, uh, we are, we are funding, um, you know, faith-based organizations, we're funding medication for opioid use disorder, um, funding your very traditional, um, sort of inpatient um, treatment stays, and, and also very non-traditional um, uh, uh, other types of, of, of um, therapeutic um, settings. So we're, um, for us, um, a pathway is just another tool in that toolbox. And um, I want all of them to be available because from what I've seen, um, there is not a one size fits all approach that works because this is just as we're all individuals, this disease is really about the individual and it's for them, it's finding their own path in this journey. And so um, for, um, you know, as we look at the recovery piece and how do we measure it, I would love to be able to um, look and we, we've been able to begin to do this with our Medicaid population a little bit at how we can um, see when they have um, completed a um, treatment segment and then we don't see them um, for a while, you know, in, in Medicaid billings uh, and then they pop back up. Um, and so we can somewhat assume that there was a period of time in which their recovery was sustained. And, um, and so what we can tell is when they hit the system again. Um, the hard part is knowing when that, that recovery segment um, stopped for them. Uh, and so I, I, ideally those segments get longer, um, but also our hope is, is that people are, are more quickly entering um, back into recovery. So um, it's very difficult to measure without um, you know, uh, uh, some probably fairly unorthodox surveillance systems, but um, uh, we, we it is something that we're continually looking at because um, the last thing I want is for um, individuals and families investing in programs um, or um, or treatment providers that um, aren't providing really high quality, um, really good work for um, those with substance use disorder. Yeah. I think um, another challenge around there is that you could have a really high quality provider and the individual is just not at a point where they are ready to fully yeah. surrender or engage. And so, yeah, there's just so many like nuances and so much goes back to like the individual's mindset and where they are in their journey, um, you know that impacts whether it's successful at that time or not. Um, I think something that's changed in our mindset also is I know originally going into it, being so scared of the idea of relapse and like, 
I hope my loved one never relapses. And the reality is like, they likely will. And I think I've kind of shifted a little bit and that like relapse doesn't have to be terrible. I've seen like each time that that has happened, my loved one has gained some new perspective from it. He's gotten a little bit further along the path. It's gotten him to a point where then this last time, which was almost three years ago, it was like, I am really ready for this. And now I've, I have this base and I'm able to build off of it. And so I think, I guess a key and that I am glad to hear of encouraging people to continue going back is that just because there's a relapse doesn't mean like it's done and it might not work the first time, but it could work years down the road. So well, also, a, oh, go ahead. Oh, well, this, so there's also a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, research and evidence around coercive treatment. You know, um, uh, there is um, th- every, every year there's, there's always um, a legislative proposal or, or, or someone talking about creating a program in which, um, you know, the, there's some sort of forced treatment involved. And um, what we know is forced treatment doesn't work. Um, even if the individual, you know, goes through the forced treatment, we know that they're, um, they're like eight to 20 times more likely to overdose and die after that forced treatment episode. Um, and so it, it is really about when the individual is ready. And that, that also makes it very difficult when um, people are, you know, people are asking, um, you know, what are, what are you doing? How are you, you know, how are you tracking these? Um, Last I checked, people still have free will, um, which is why it's important that we, you know, that we build a system that has all those touch points. Um, I I read at one point that um, an individual will have, um, you know, 30 can have on average has about 38 different touch points um, uh, or offers of help before they accept it um, that first time. And so if you think about that, I mean, um, uh, I mean, families give up after, you know, 10 or 12. Um, friends are long gone by the time we get to 20. Um, and that's why it's so important that we we build that safety net, that um, we have those connections to peer recovery coaches and all of our systems, you know, our emergency departments, our, um, our justice system, um, that when people are hitting those systems, that we're offering that help because you never know, it may be that 38th time um, that they say, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. I feel like that tracks like the number of touch points, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. I do want to say that I know that, you know, there are, I asked that question out of curiosity because um, as a family member and especially as a spouse, I think that we look for these measures of, is this person getting better? what am I in for? How do I, do I stay? Do I go like, because it, because while relapse is oftentimes a part of the recovery process, when you're talking about a drug like fentanyl, it is life or death. And so I think that it is a heavy decision, but I think even if I would have seven, eight years ago, heard someone in your seat say, we don't really know because there are so many different avenues to recovery. We're still figuring this out that could have just made me feel a little bit better. So while it may be simple, but I think to our audience, hearing someone who has access to all this information, all of these experts say, we're still figuring that out, is maybe just a a small like, 
can, they can sigh, have a little bit of a sigh of relief that like we're all still figuring this out. This is so new and like the goal really is to keep them alive and keep them on the path, like keep having these amazing resources that you've chatted about, like accessible. And so I just think that that's a huge message like that I really think that our audience will benefit from. And I know that I personally would have, if I would have heard you say that at Fairbanks eight years ago, I would be like, okay, this is not like hopeless. And I just think that's really important to highlight. Well, and just as important as, you know, an individual's recovery journey is, um, the family around them, uh, you know, it's an individual journey for them. Um, it's, you know, not always the right decision for someone to, to stay, um, or, or, or go. Um, that's, that's the individual. I mean, it's every situation is, is different. And, um, I think that's why it's so important that, um, and I'm so, so happy to see that so many of our, um, treatment programs, um, are incorporating family because this disease has such an impact on loved ones. Um, as you, uh, you know, as uh, you know, you you almost become sick as you deal with your 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 loved one and um, the worrying about them and are they are they safe? Are you know are they you know going to make it home after work today? Um, these are all um, things that you know it's a. Um, we have to look at this, you know, the impact that it has on, um, on, on not just partners, but also, you know, children as well. So um, I'm really excited that a lot of our um, treatment programs are, are really taking a much more holistic approach uh, than just dealing with the individual with substance use disorder. Yeah. At the state level, or maybe some of these, um, like, individual programs that you're referencing, are there any like resources that you could share with us, like that are directed for families? And you know, most of our audience are family members. Yeah. So, um, um, parents of addicted loved ones uh, is a fantastic group. Um, they have chapters all across the state, um, led by some um, really um, you know fantastic women who have um, struggled with um, their kids' substance use disorders. Um, but also, you know, back to Overdose Lifeline, um, Justin Phillips has made it her mission to implement um, CRAFT, which is the Community Reinforcement and Family Training. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's an evidence-based program that, um, that really helps the family provide um, or provides the family with the coping skills that they need uh, to deal with their loved one. And um, that's great because it, it works on both um, the and, and, you know, the family, when the individual individual is um, still still using and a part of their life and, and also um, provides those skills for, uh, a, you know, a family member who's in or families that have a family member in recovery as well. So um, that's a, that's a great, um, great program that um, Justin is implementing across the state as well. And it's something that um, we're we're really helping um, to fund. And um, she's got a number of partners who are providing that resource as well. Yeah, the um, part of like once your loved one gets into recovery, there's still so much support needed. I think we've talked about this in the past where there's this kind of have this false idea of recovery is the finish line. Like, okay, I just need to get them to treatment and get, you know, they'll get clean and then things will be fine. And um, I think it was Jessica said one time that like recovery is actually like the starting line. Um, and there's just so much 
trust that has to be rebuilt and then all the challenges of adjusting to new life and early recovery. So having that support all the way is definitely needed. Yeah, it, it is. That is totally true that recovery is the start line. Um, and it's, and it's a journey and it's difficult for everybody involved. Um, not just the, not just the person with SUD, but especially um, the family. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, is there anything else that you'd like to share um, before we close out? Yeah, I think um, two areas where, um, you know, we're really spending a lot of focus over the next, um, well, uh, at least the next two and a half years while um, while I'm still here, uh, but likely over the next um, seven to 10 years is this intersection of um, mental health and addiction and the criminal justice system. And uh, as we look at its impact, you know, um, for far too long, individuals, as they end up in our jails, they're, they're detoxing without any medical um, assistance. They are, um, you know, jails are not the appropriate place for individuals who have substance use disorder or um, mental health issues. And um, so our, our goal, and, and I think to put it really plainly, um, a state representative who's working on this issue with us has said, you have to sort out who you're mad at and who you're afraid of. And so not everybody is really ripe for diversion. Um, there are some dangerous people who have mental health and addiction issues, and we need to provide treatment for them in the system. But there are so many individuals that we can reroute through um, the you know, through the justice system, whether it's even deflecting them from ever entering in the first place and having places for, for people to go. Um, you know, our drug courts, uh, mental health courts, veterans courts, family recovery courts, all of our problem solving courts in the state. We have over 140 um, all across the, the state. And, um, you know, those uh, add those additional supports as people move through. And, um, and then, you know, all of this work is built upon the sequential intercept model, and it's how someone moves through the system and how uh, we can, at every point in time, uh, either add additional resources into the to the justice system or remove that individual from the system in its entirety. And so um, this is really important to us. Um, you know, we have been um, funding uh programs in 32 jails to provide evidence-based treatment. Um, we have um provided treatment to 4,400 individuals um, in the last two years. And then also um, we just launched five pilots where we're adding peer recovery coaches. Uh, and I can't say enough about the impact of peer recovery coaches in this process. Uh, and so the peers are, um, are uh, matched up with individuals as they enter the jail and they work their way through the system. And then most importantly, as individuals exit the jail, um, our peers are, are there to help um, make sure that they get to our recovery hub so that we can help them with housing and um, make it to their, you know, to their appointments with probation and uh, community corrections. So there's so many uh, different ways in which we can add additional services. And, and it's so important, too, because 
Um, with 80% of those in the criminal justice system having a diagnosable substance use disorder, um, it's really ground zero for um, individuals to kind of restart their lives. And so um, that's it's an area that we've spent a lot of time on. Um, and, you know, just as important, too, is our 988 system that we're, that we're building. So 988 is the um, nationwide um, crisis uh, lifeline. It, um, it's a it's kind of the second iteration of the uh, suicide hotline, but it's for anyone who's in a mental health crisis. And the goal is to have um, someone to um, someone to call, which is our 988 operators. They are um, uh, live in Indiana, and your calls when you call in, here in Indiana are um, answered by someone in our state. And um, they have the ability to not just help someone um, through their crisis, but then make referrals um, and connections to um, other types of supports in that call. But when we can't resolve um, the issue over the phone, our goal is then to have uh, mobile crisis teams who can then respond um, to those areas. And this is important, especially as, you know, we, we've seen um, police-involved shootings. Uh, it's really important that we're um, sending out mental health um, uh, mental health professionals, uh, because we know that we'll get a different result uh, when we do things differently. So uh, we're we're working on that. And then finally, the last place is some of those individuals, their crisis won't be able to be resolved in the field, and we'll need a safe place for them to go. And so working with our providers all across the state to build a robust crisis system um, and to be able to have a place where not just um, people can get taken to uh, when there is a crisis and um, our mobile teams, but also uh, people can walk into them. Um, there are parts and pieces of this system um, all across the state that um, that are kind of models uh, for implementation. And we're looking at those partners and, and looking to build the system that makes the most sense and um, we'll get the best results here in Indiana. But um, that's really exciting because it will um, remove individuals with mental health and substance use disorders from our um, emergency departments, from our jails, really help um, make our communities uh, a lot safer as we, you know, use appropriate resources uh, to deal with uh, individuals who are in crisis. Yeah. So really exciting stuff going on over the next, yeah. next many, many yeah. years. A big yes. undertaking, but yes. very yeah. necessary and important work. So yeah, and it's, I just want to say thank you. I mean, for someone who would directly benefit, like, no, I understand the impact. Like, I just massively understand the impact. My husband um, was one of those people that ended up in jail because of a drug thing. Like, he's a good person, but luckily, you know, he went through the VA court, which was actually a great experience, uh, honestly. Um, but just seeing, like, I, at the time, I felt like, oh, we're really lucky. We got a great judge who's like really pushing him, holding him accountable, and it was like a transformative part in my husband's recovery. And I was like, I wish everyone had this. So just to hear that these things are being thought about is is really reassuring for someone like me. So I just want to say thank you and like appreciate what you are doing. It, it's going to help like our families. So appreciate that. Well, thank you. I'm a I'm a big believer that your um, you know your geographic location, you know where you get arrested or um, what jurisdiction you're in, really shouldn't impact the resources that are available to you. Um, we should, you know, no matter where you hit the system, we should be offering you the full menu. And um, that that takes a lot of work and takes a lot of money. Um, but um, we're we're working on that to make sure that, you know, access and really equitable access is something that's um, really important 
uh, as we continue to build out the infrastructure to help, you know, ideally set everybody on their uh, road to recovery. That's awesome. Man, this, it, like Jessica, like uh, this conversation has made me very hopeful and very happy. Um, so I'm hoping other people can kind of feel that. Um, so anyone, so we, we, um, our podcast is listened to outside of Indiana. And so if anybody um, wants to, um, can people call you or how can people maybe get something like this in their state started or what would be a step that anybody could take to kind of get this in their state? Cause I don't know if there's many like you um, in other states. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that if this is a normal role. <laughs> yeah, so every state does have a, a, a mental health and substance use um, uh, administration or department um, that uh, um, that administers the federal funding around this. Um, they're likely working um, on a lot of these initiatives. Um, there, there are a handful of states that have a uh, drug czar, uh, so to speak. And um, um, but you know, it's uh, I think the the best way to reach us is through our website in.gov/backslash/recovery another backslash slash settlement or backslash settlement takes you to the national opioid settlement, um, which is another funding source for a lot of other efforts. Um, we can put these in the show notes as well. So yeah. wonderful. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much for spending your time with us today. Everyone, thank you so much for listening and keep coming back. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back. We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.